Last week, I talked a bit about inclusion and the liberal progressive aspiration toward the goal of inclusion. For most liberals and progressives, the supposed direction of democracy and the direction of U.S. history is toward inclusion. That's the goal of Unitarian Universalism and humanism and progressive American politics, the goal of progressive causes all over the place. The narrative progressives tell is of a march toward inclusion. The abolition of slavery, women's rights, labor rights, civil rights, immigrant rights, feminism, LGBTQ rights, onward and upward with the arc of the universe bending toward justice. Therefore, we are much distressed when we face our hypocrisy. The United States is not inclusive. Unitarian Universalism is not good at being inclusive. Humanism is not good at being inclusive. The assumptions of European colonialism and white supremacy permeate all of those institutions. We ignore the takeover of the continent. We ignore the genocide of native, native peoples, and the list just goes on. Democracy and inclusion are stories we tell ourselves. They're fictions, but they're supreme fictions, as the poet Wallace Stevens called them. Supreme fictions, according to Wallace Stevens, are fictions which need to be true, even if they aren't true yet. And so we imagine those supreme fictions all the harder, making them manifest, we hope, by sheer will. Or at least those supreme fictions form our aspirations, our dream of what can be. Then there is the counter-narrative. I don't want to be unfair. The conservative narrative of an onward and upward arc in terms of I don't know, middle-class prosperity, entrepreneurship, economic opportunity, low regulation, individual freedom, the freedom of conservative Christianity to influence politics and social policy, spreading democracy and free markets here and abroad, bootstraps for everyone, I suppose. And surprise, surprise, those two narratives don't always work in the same direction and thus we have American politics. It can get distressing. Not only does it appear that liberal progressive values are in the minority in our nation, but also there is the fact that our own purported inclusiveness is self-delusion. So, you know, what is a poor progressive to do? I made one suggestion about what to do last week. Use your words. Or at least watch how words are being used by you and your family and your friends and your neighbors and the politicians and the media. Because words do matter. Or they don't. Last week I mentioned the work of the historian Timothy Snyder who published a book called On Tyranny, 20 Lessons from the 20th Century. And I quoted number 17 which reads, listen for dangerous words. Be alert to the use of the words extremism and terrorism. 
Be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. Be angry about the treacherous use of patriotic vocabulary." End quote. The fatal notions of emergency and exception, or state of exception, was coined by the German legal theorist Carl Schmitt. I'm going to try because, thanks for helping me, Paul, to try to get this right. Ausnahmesustand. That's too, fr too French. Yeah, there have been a couple of wars about that, haven't there? Well, yeah, but I'm trying. Yeah, I, that's what you got to love about German philosophers is all they have to do is stick words together and they have a whole new idea, right? But Carl Schmitt was a Nazi. He survived the Second World War, and he never repudiated Nazism. In a state of exception, according to Schmitt, leaders are free to suspend the laws for the public good. Now, that sounds good at first blush, suspending laws for a little while for the public good. It even sounds necessary. But, as Schmidt well knew, the Nazis did what they did by declaring everything an exception in every moment an emergency. Don't you believe in the rule of law? Sure, but this is an exception. We've got an emergency here. Now, the most blatant example of the state of exception in recent US history is the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. 45 days after that, Congress passed the USA Patriot Act into law. And sure, that law violated basic constitutional freedoms, but it was an emergency. And as Schmidt could tell you, after you get that emergency legislation, it never goes away. But we live in exceptional times now, right? There's a crisis at our southern border. There's a crisis in American manufacturing. There's a crisis on our streets and in our schools, there are dangers everywhere. Well, yes, there are. The world, I would say, is burning. But, you know what? The world has always been burning. Mm -hmm. And there always have been dangers everywhere. A burning world, as a matter of fact, is not exceptional. That's not a reason to stop considering what law and justice mean. The title of my talk today, To Make an End is to Make a Beginning, is by the poet T.S. Eliot. Eliot served as a civilian air raid, air raid warden during the London Blitz of 1940-41. For 56 days, German bombs fell on London. It killed 40,000 people or more, wounded another 100,000 people or more. And what did Eliot do as he sat in a tall building watching London burn each day and night? Well, besides his air raid spotting duties, he wrote a poem one of his most spiritual poems called Little Gidding, and that's where that line comes from. 
Now that's what I'm going to call being spiritually chill. <laughs> now the Italian philosopher Giorgio Angamben focused on Schmidt's idea in a book called State of Exception, in Italian, which I won't even try, right? Agamben wrote the quote that heads up your order of service this morning. He wrote, one day humanity will play with law just as children play with disused objects, not in order to restore them to their canonical use, but to free them from it for good. Now, the flames of authoritarianism cannot survive, I would argue, without the oxygen of exception and emergency. It's up to people who believe in reason, those things that Rev. Kelly was having you mention, it is up to people who believe in those things to deprive those flames of their oxygen. We live in a moment that is part of a long struggle between those who thrive on continuous emergencies and exceptions, fear, and those who believe not only in the rule of law, but in the rule of just laws, which you have to keep reconsidering. That sort of consideration requires chill. You know our active voices groups. Yes, you can sign postcards today downstairs. That group is very much like the group that formed this congregation back in the 19th century. And that group was called the National Liberal League. Now, yes, that was mostly a men's group back in 1870-something because uh, women weren't allowed to vote anyway. So they didn't count in their calculation. But that group is part of the DNA of what became the League of Women Voters, when women could vote, which is also part of the history of this congregation. The Liberal League formed as a letter-writing, lobbying group to fight what were known as the Comstock Laws, laws designed to stop pornography in the US mail. What would be bad about that? Now, what did Mr. Comstock see as pornography? Well, sure, what were known in the days as French photographs, <laughs> but also anything that had to do with sexuality or contraception, because naturellement, sounds more French, <laughs> women could not be allowed to take charge of their own bodies, no. Pornography, in those quotes, also included any material that might promote ideas outside of white Protestant Christian orthodoxy. Atheists and agnostics spent time in jail over trying to send out material like this. But how could the US government allow women, those pure and simple creatures, just look at the sweet things <laughs> to think outside of the orthodox box. What would happen to the children? The Liberal League lost. The Comstock laws became the law of the land and their effects on the U.S. mail continued into the 1960s and their effects on American society continue into our own day. 
Just imagine a what if for a moment. What if the Liberal League had won? What if the battle over contraception had ended in 1875? What if free thought ideas on sexuality, gender, politics, and religion had gone out to the farms and villages of America? What if? What I'm going to be doing this summer, I should tell you as the world burns, is I'm going to be taking a sabbatical thanks to you of 11 weeks. And Rev. Jim and Rev. Kelly will be here, so, you know, the, the, this place probably won't burn down. But I have a couple this of projects. This place will not burn down. Pro not, well, you know, that's one of the things about this building, yes, yeah. <laughs> I have a couple of projects for the summer, thanks to you. For one, I'll be spending time in the Meadville Library in the archives because when the Unitarian Universalist Association moved from their old Boston headquarters, they sent everything they had to Meadville Lombard Theological School archives. And so the congregational records for this congregation going back to 1880 are in those archives. And it's about a foot and a half thick, I understand. So I'm gonna be looking at that to see what I can bring back to you about our past. My second project is a book of meditations that I'm titling for now, The Poetics of Free Thought. Although perhaps I will try to get that term spiritual chill in there somehow or other. <laughs> now as you probably know, free thought is another word for the humanist tradition. And in many ways, it's one that I prefer. Free thought describes thinking that attempts to avoid dogma, unexamined emotion, and received cultural notions. Free thought attempts to think outside of that white, Protestant, Christian, European, bad Greek ideas box. Free thought is about taking a practical standpoint anew. That view from nowhere as closely as we can get it. Everything we think and do is, of course, culturally conditioned. It's run through the filters of dogma and emotion and cultural assumptions. But free thought is an attempt to see reality every day anew. An attempt to question the doxa, that's where the term orthodoxy comes from, the doxa, which are the common beliefs and popular opinions of the culture. Now, why am I working on a book like that when the world is burning? Well, for the same reason that T.S. Eliot wrote a poem as he sat under Nazi bombs. The world is always burning. And chances are, the world will always be burning, including when I get back here. It'll be burning as long as human beings exist on this planet, I assume. We must imagine a better future anyway. Some of us, a few of us, are fortunate enough to have some time to think about time and history and oppression and liberation. I know how fortunate I am. I was born into the working class where every day is taken up with a mad scramble merely to survive, and you hope you can pay the bills. That's the situation of most people in our country, and most people in our world. But 
a few of us are blessed with some time out of time, as I see it, some breathing room to reflect on the human condition, some time to chill out as the world burns. So that's what I'm going to be doing with my summer vacation. Sure, the times feel exceptional. They feel like an emergency. Because none of us remember 1875 with the Comstock crackdown. And not many of us remember 1935 when the Roman Catholic priest Father Charles Coughlin held huge fascist rallies all over the Midwest praising Hitler and Mussolini. This nation and this world has always been on fire. Everything has always been an emergency. Our job here today is to succeed where that old liberal league failed. As I've said before, we do ourselves a great disservice thinking human history or US history is moving inevitably toward those liberal uh, goals of uh, freedom and inclusion. Uh, it's one vi vision of the world, and it's not maybe the one that's going to win out. We just don't know. Yes, in his last two books, the psychologist Steven Pinker has made good statistical evidence. You got to read those. We're going to have a book group for the newest one next year. It's about, what, three inches thick, right? <laughs> He's got a lot of evidence to say that the world is getting better, safer, more democratic, freer. But the problem with the argument is it's all statistics. And there are pockets of people and nations where that is not the case. So we have to keep fighting for human flourishing. We have a few options when we face up to the real facts of the matter. We can deny them, and we can run away screaming, or we can roll up our sleeves and get to work. Humanism isn't a faith or a belief system, yes, despite the this brochure. It isn't a faith or a belief system, but rather a way of thinking about our core values, our core commitments. One of those commitments is to knowledge and wisdom. And one of those bits of knowledge is the knowledge of human history and how full it is of emergencies and exceptions. A human history in which, as a matter of fact, Oh, emergency and exception has been about all there's ever been. But you know, the cliche of early humans cowering in caves is just that. It's a false cliche. The artifacts from the human past clearly demonstrate that people have always been engineers. You know how complicated it is to figure out how to make a rock sharp? Or even that you ought to make a rock sharp? Those were engineers. There were artists. There were scientists, mathematicians, ethicists, lawyers, builders, philosophers. Yes, the archaeological evidence of the human past tells us there's been a lot of stuff burned down. There's been a lot of murders. But things always get rebuilt. Humanist commitments are always both individual and communal because human beings can't be fully human in isolation. We share 
our humanity. This is one way liberals differ from conservatives. As a species, we've come a fairly long way. We've discovered much about ourselves and our cosmos, but like the ancient Hindu god Shiva, we are both creators and destroyers, and we have to face the fact. We human beings know how to create a better world than the one we currently inhabit. Those faiths and beliefs that stand in the way of that better world, well, you know what? Let's vote them out of our cave, shall we? Let's get to work on that. We must not, however, no matter the emergency, play with law just as children play with disused objects. That goes for the political left as well as the political right. We must be alive to the fatal notions of emergency and exception. We must be angry about the treacherous use of patriotic vocabulary. Winning this requires chill. <laughs>